if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James chapter one and verse 13. We are in week two or week three, I'm sorry, of Hope Dreams Big. It's a series that we're doing about identity and what it is to identify in Christ. We'll talk a little bit about that today. Last week, uh, Lori and I were on vacation, so Scott filled in for me. Uh, I heard he did a great uh, job and everybody, seems like everybody had a great time uh, on Mother's Day last week. Um, but I'll tell you what, being able to just take off and leave and not worry about anything, that's a huge burden off our shoulders, Lori and I's shoulders. So thank God for all the ministry teams and the eldership and everybody who makes things run smoothly when we're gone. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you've opened to James chapter one and verse 13. And I will say this, that the Bible calls us to live a life of, of an overcomer. Now that, that phrase is used a lot, overcomer. We are overcomers. It's written in song lyrics, Christian song lyrics. It's talked about in sermons. But what does it really mean to understand that we are to be those who overcome? Well, we have a reference to scripture that we're going through as part of our series in Psalms. And it says that, what is man that you're mindful of him, that you've crowned him with glory and honor, dignity and worth, be a better translation of those words, that you set him to rule over the works of your hands, you put everything under his feet, that you've made him a little lower in one, in one place it says than yourself, and in another place where the scriptures reference, it says you've made him a little lower than angelic beings. It's the Hebrew phrase, B'nai Elohim, which is the God counsel, that God literally made us a little bit lower than those who orchestrate the affairs of eternity. The three-part Godhead that we serve, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the archangels who are part of that conversation, we are made just a little lower than they are. That we have a sense of dignity and worth in how we are crafted and created. So why then do we come up with all kinds of false notions in theology? We come up with crazy ideas in theology that diminish our sense of value, our sense of dignity and worth. And one of them we're gonna talk about this morning, we're gonna hit and we'll move on, this idea that somehow God is torturing you to teach you. That somehow all of the negative things that happen in your life, God is placed there to build up your character. And if you'll just give in to the process, brother, God will grow you, mature you in, your gra in his grace, that you'll be a better person, that the moment that you give in to this torturous event in your life, God will mature you into who you're supposed to be. In fact, we hear crazy things like this when someone loses a job. Well, God's just putting me through the ringer to, to teach me something. Someone will get diagnosed with a very se severe illness or serious illness and will say things, well, you know, his ways are above our ways and I'm sure he's going to teach you something out of it. A few years ago, many of you know that I, I tore both tricep uh, tendons off my arms and I was in traction for months, total traction. I couldn't move my arms for months. I had question after question after question. Why did God do this to you, brother? What's he trying to teach you? Patience, a different set of skills of reliance that you rely on him. I'm thinking, you idiots, God didn't do this to me. I did this to me. I got underneath some weight that I was way too sure of because in my younger years, I could lift the weight easily. I got underneath this weight as, as I'm getting a little older, maybe a little more frail, a little more brittle and tore the tendons off my arms. That's what happened. I had tendonitis so bad leading up to that in my arms that the burning pain in my elbows would literally wake me up at night, but I ignored it as no pain, no gain. Yeah, that's stupid. I didn't do, or God didn't do that, I did that to me. Yet we ascribe at times moments in life where we go through hardship and we say stupid things like, well, God must be teaching me something. 
James chapter one and verse 13. God is not torturing you to teach you. That's what I want you to emphasize here. It says this, let no one say that, we, that when they're being tempted, that word tempted, if we look at the original, uh, the original word there, it breaks out into three different words, tempted, tested, tried. They're used interchangeably. Let no one say what he is, tempted, tested, or tried, that I'm being tempted, tested, tried by God. For God cannot test, tempt, try by evil or by evil means. He himself does not test, tempt, try anyone. So why do we say dumb things in our theological makeup, in our way of understanding God? Why do we say dumb things when hardships come? Why do we say things like, well, I'm going through the ringer, so God must be teaching me something. Many of you have heard this example that I give of my sons. You know, my sons, as they get older, they're gonna learn hardship. They're gonna learn struggle. They're gonna learn what it is to, to walk through life with difficulty. Now, as a good dad, I could take one of my sons, the, the, the three-year-old, soon to be four-year-old, I could take him aside, grab Noble's little arm and snap it over my knee. And you cringe when I say that and say, well, God, you, you know, little boy, you've got to learn hardship. So I'm going to snap that little arm and I'm going to teach you what it is to live in hardship, to live in pain. We'll get it fixed. We'll get it set. You'll be a better man for it. In fact, where it broke, that bone will actually grow stronger together and you'll be stronger and, and, and as, as an adult man, as an adult person, you know that if I broke my son's arm, you should call Child Protective Services, have me arrested. Yet we ascribe the same abusive behavior to God. Something negative happens in our life and we go, well, he's, he's torturing me to teach me. No, the Bible says in James chapter one and verse 13, he doesn't test, tempt, or try anyone by evil means. And then we make up other theological lines. We say, well, his ways are above our ways. Well, are we sure of that in totality in Isaiah chapter five and verse 20? See, we understand much more about God and God's character than we, than we really, really let on. His ways are above ways and we don't necessarily think like God thinks. Yet in Isaiah chapter five and verse 20, it says this, how terrible, <coughs> how terrible it would be for those who call evil good and good evil, who uh, substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute what is bitter for what is sweet and for what is sweet for what is bitter. The Bible's literally saying, you understand the difference between good and evil. You understand what is right and proper, what is good, what is to be called good, what is to be called holy. Don't turn it around and for your lack of better statements or better words, start to call something that God and we all know is evil is good. In that same sense, you all know it's wrong an evil for an adult man to take a four-year-old and break his arm on purpose. Everyone knows that's wrong and evil. Yet we assign that same characteristic, that same quality to God, and we say that he's teaching us something that does not shine through to the idea that you and I are created with a sense of dignity and worth, that you and I are created with a sense of value, that when we look to the heavens and we look at the night sky and we see the stars as they hang in their sockets, that we wonder to God, what is man that you would even have a thought towards him? Yet not that you have a thought towards him, but that you've crafted us with a sense of dignity and honor, a sense of value. See, you and I, by nature, we are pleasure-seeking people. My wife and I went on vacation because we were seeking pleasure to get away from the weather of the Midwest, to find the warm sun and the sand in our feet, to lay on the beach and listen to the sound of the waves. 
man, we were seeking moments of pleasure. We went out to eat while we were on vacation, seeking moments of pleasure as we stuffed food in our faces and just loved every minute of eating those fried oysters. Man, I can feel it right now. I can smell it. If you like oysters, I, man, I love them raw. I don't care how you bring them to me. I love oysters. I love that seafood. Lori's all about the shrimp and the crawfish and all the shellfish and I'm allergic so I can't have that. But I think for four meals in a row, my boys ate shrimp or four evenings in a row. They just love that seafood because we're seeking pleasure. But when we think that God is the arbiter of pain and not pleasure, that when we look to him, we look to his hand as not a hand to help, but a hand to hurt. And it starts to build, we start to build a wall in our life of how we can confidently connect with God. Trials are tools of the enemy that are used for us to yield to him a sense of dignity and worth, that we would give over to him a sense of lordship. And many of us do it and then ascribe that lordship. We, we ascribe that lordship in the process, that, 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 that demanding moment, that moment where hardship comes, we ascribe a sense of lordship, that it is over us, that it runs us, and that it runs our life. That these hardship moments aren't trials to overcome, but they become trials to settle into and live in. And many of us get caught in that moment. Sickness and poverty, broken relationships, areas of our life where we've, <coughs> excuse me, settled into a sense of brokenness. We are meant to overcome every single trial that's put in front of us. Genesis chapter one and verse 26, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. But God is, is immensely serious about us living a life of an overcomer. We're gonna hit Revelation here in a second. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, chapter one, verse 26, then go all the way to the end of the book, Revelations chapter two and verse seven. We're gonna see this contrast that God sets up from the beginning of scripture all the way to the end of scripture says this in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the air, of the cattle, over the earth and everything that creeps on the earth and every creeping thing on the earth. So God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the airs, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Initially, when we were created, when God carved us out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into us, he set into our person a sense of dominion, a sense of rule, a sense of authority, a sense of an overcoming nature. And if we skip forward through biblical history, we learned that man lost that sense of authority. He lost that sense of dominion. He lost that sense of dignity and worth the moment he sided with God's arch enemy. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, that sense of dignity and worth was pulled away from them to the point that they felt such shame that they started to cover themselves with fig leaves as if God can't see through the mess that they've made. They were hoping that these man-made fig leaves would set a barrier and that God wouldn't see them as they were. God was ready to exchange their, me their mess up. God was ready to exchange their failure for his glory. Yet in that moment, they decided to craft an out that was built by human hands 
And all throughout biblical history, we see man trying to craft an out, a way out of dealing with shame, of dealing with loss, a way out of dealing with our own imperfections. Yet the only way that we know that we can truly override that is through the cross. We come to Jesus as being that ultimate payment for our sin, for our mess ups, for our issues. We come to Jesus being that ultimate payment. And then we have a responsibility to either live in the old dead life that's always trying to find a way to cover ourselves, to cover up the issues of life, to cover up the stuff we deal with, to cover up our shame and our guilt, or we lay it at the cross. If we lay it at the cross, the Bible says at that moment, we become overcomers. In fact, to such a degree that in Revelation chapter two and verse seven, he says this, to whom overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life. That's that tree that they first disobeyed God with. He said, don't eat of that one piece of fruit. They ate of it, they disobeyed God, they sinned, and in sinning, shame came in. So to reset the bar, he says, if you live in me, and if you live in Christ, if you experience this life of an overcomer, re-identifying yourself with dignity and worth, in that moment, I will give you the right to eat of that forever fruit, meaning that we can be in the right station with God forever. And then in Roman, or Revelation chapter two and verse 11, he says, he who overcomes, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Meaning that this body will decay and fall away. But if you put your trust in Christ, that when this life is over and you have a chance to spend eternity, heaven or hell, that you won't experience that second death, that secondary or tertiary idea of death, that you will come up to his level. You will live with God in eternity and forever. But that's for those who overcome. In Revelation chapter two and verse 17, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him even the hidden manna. That there is God, God is withholding at times something for us individually. That he's holding it back for us here and now. That he could deposit in our heart that special revelation, that special connection, that moment where you feel the impasse of heaven meeting earth and God shows himself in, in a real term in your life. And then in Revelation chapter two and 26, to him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. Revelation chapter three and verse five, to him who overcomes uh, like them, he will be dressed in white. In Revelation chapter three and verse 12, to him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Revelation chapter three and 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is Jesus bringing it back full circle. He's saying, if you will allow yourself to let go of your old dead life, learn to re-identify in me, you will be an overcomer. And these blessings, these promises, the total of scripture, the promises of the total of scripture will be at our beck and call if we will learn how to live in this new space that he's carved for us. God created us to overcome in every area of life. He made you to have dominion. Yet the church at times criticizes people when they exercise dominion. When they exercise rule and authority and reign here on planet earth, many times the church as a whole, not just this church, we start to criticize. Someone gets a lot of money in the congregation. Maybe they have a business that goes really well for them and they start to amass a lot of wealth. The church sometimes are the first folks to start to criticize. Well, they couldn't have got it honest. Can't imagine, can't imagine who he messed over to get that kind of money. 
And we start this battle in our minds, right? Rather than recognizing that God has given some different skill sets and different gifts and that equates to different things in life and position and authority and finance and money and maybe influence, rather than recognizing the beauty and how they're made and the nature that they're crafted in, maybe someone's just getting a little more influence than you in, in the job scenario. And rather than understand the beauty and their, how they're crafted, we start to put them down and we start to judge. And it's all because we don't understand the very value, the nature, the dignity and worth that we are crafted in, that we have been molded in. If you ever lose a sense of dominion, if you ever lose this sense of dignity and worth, you start to lose what it is to, to experience true dignity as a human person. This is why there's so many emotional conflicts in our life. That's why so many of us are connected in an emotional way to success and failure. Because in our successes and in our failures is a, mo is, is a moment of dignity and worth. It's a, it's a moment of connection. It's a moment of dominion. And if we don't express it properly, if we fail, then what happens? Our hearts start to grow dim. We start to lose what it is to feel the value and worth that we're seeking for, that we're looking after. Psalms chapter, three, or chapter eight and verse three and six. When I look up in the night sky and I see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have made, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, that you even visit him, that you've made him a little lower than heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor and dignity and worth. And you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. We see in, Gener in, in Genesis, this is how we're created. God creates us in his image. He, he stamps us with his approval. He gives man dominion on the planet. The psalmist is referencing this idea and wondering how we're even created, wondering why we're created with such, such dignity and worth. Skips along into Hebrews, into the New Testament, and it's rehearsed again that it said somewhere that men are created with dignity and worth, with glory and honor. And then Jesus wraps up the story in Revelation and says, those who are in me, those who are those overcoming or of an overcoming spirit, you will have such an overcoming nature that you'll literally sit on the throne that have carved out this, this station of authority right next to my father because we are heirs and we are joint heirs according to the promise. See, we have to start to understand, to re-identify who we actually are. The reason our hope has, has the position to even dream big. The reason we have a hope in Christ that can dream big is because we know who we are. You are called to be an overcomer in every area of life because it's part of your spiritual DNA. Your spiritual DNA is cut in such a way that you are not left to your own devices, that you're not left to hope and to wonder and wish that it'll work out, that you're not left without hope and help, that you're not left to yourself. Your spiritual DNA is crafted in such a way that God has set in you everything that you need to be an overcomer. This idea of expressing a level of authority, expressing a level of dominion, it's all about knowing our position, who we are and how we're seated, who we are and who we're connected with, who we are and, and where we're at in the totem pole of life. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. It's a very important portion of scripture in expressing 
our understanding of who we are and how we've been crafted and how God sees us. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, it says there were 72 uh, returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And this is Jesus. He replied back to them, I saw heaven fall like lightning. Or, I'm sorry, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name is, are written in heaven. He's talking to a group of people like us who he'd been pouring into and talking about their newly crafted identity. He's talking to a group of people who he had been pumping up and just giving them insights into this life in the kingdom. And they go out on a missionary journey and they're challenged to live out the scripture, to live out the teachings of Jesus, to live out this, this thing called Christianity. And they find a place where literally the demons themselves, these, these, these imps of hell, literally have to obey. They're subject to the name of Christ. And they're astonished. These men are just floored, they're flabbergasted by the idea that a demon, a, a, a spirit, a, an evil spirit would respond to the name of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him like, you don't even understand what you're seeing. I saw fall from heaven like lightning, Satan. Satan is just a, a generic term. Sometimes it's a real specific term, but other times it's very generic. In this context, it's more generic adversary, the adversary of God, the adversary of anything good, the adversary of the promises of God. I saw every obstacle. I saw every mountain. I saw every wall. I saw every speed bump in your life fall like lightning from heaven to earth. And then he says, I've given you the authority to trample over serpents and scorpions. I've given you the power to overcome all of the enemy's powers, anything that the enemy could put in front of you, I have given you the power to overcome. Jesus paints a word picture, snakes and scorpions, those things that sneak up on us, that try to take little moments of our life away, that try to steal moments of our life away with fear. You have every responsibility. You have every opportunity. You have all that's needed to trample over them. But more than that, I've given you the power to literally overcome all the wiles of the enemy. So anything that could come up against us, we have every reason and responsibility to overcome by virtue of what Christ has given us. To live in dominion, to live as an overcomer, which is all dominion really means, to live in as an overcomer is part of our spiritual DNA, but it's part of the DNA of humanity. We're all crafted with a want to control, to rule, to exercise a sense of dominion. When we find, when we start to find our worth outside of God, this sense of wanting to control and have dominion starts to take kind of a, a nefarious turn. In fact, you could actually hurt other people. It's where we get the term control freak, people that just have to be right all the time. They're trying to exercise their dominion they're trying to exercise their dominion in a way that's outside of Christ, that's outside of the bounds of what it is to be found in Jesus. So they don't find their value in anything other than being right. We call those folks control freaks. Sometimes you see this expressed in a domineering spouse 
A spouse that tells their significant other, you will dress this way, you'll look like this, you better do this this way, you better do this that way, I better have the house clean when I get home, I hope you have the meal on the counter for me. They don't see in that person the value, the dignity and worth that's given to them by Christ. All they want to do is express a sense of dominion over someone and they've chosen their spouse to pick out. But this sense of dominion when it's, when it's, off kilter, when it's focused on the wrong thing. It can also come out in our parenting. We find overbearing parents who have to force their children into a mold that isn't cut for their sons or daughters. They tell their kids, you're gonna act a certain way, you're gonna look a certain way. Can't color your hair or get that tattoo or piercing because that, that's not the image I have of you in my head. You're gonna look the way I want you to look. You're gonna act the way I want you to act. Now, parents, you have a responsibility. You have a good responsibility, a God-given responsibility to guide your children. That's a godly thing. But it's not okay to be so overbearing that we come to a place where we force our children into a mold that God didn't cut for them where we force them into experiences that God didn't cut for them. We force them into a lifestyle that God didn't cut for them. In fact, we see a generation of young men right now that is so weak because moms and dads are just hanging over them as helicopter parents. There's a new study done that about 18% of millennials go to their first job interview with a parent who does the negotiating for them. Almost, it's, it's hard to believe that I'd take my mom with me on my first job interview. Hello, future boss. Hope you love my new suit and tie. By the way, I'm not tough enough to speak up for myself, so I brought my mommy. I hope that's cool. Yet we've done in our parenting because we've become so overbearing at times, because we've, we've lost a sense of God-given dignity and worth. We've lost a sense of, of God-given, a uh, sense of, of, over, of overcoming that we've, as parents, have started to force our children into a mold that God never cut for them. Jesus is of the, kind of the other suit. Jesus was a guy who was always looking for someone to lift up. He wasn't trying to force people necessarily into a mold, though he did want them to look like him and walk like him and talk like him, but because he wanted them to, new, to find a new sense of identity. But he wasn't trying to force their hand. He found a woman caught in adultery. And at that time, they had every right, religious right, to stone her where she sat to take heavy stones and a crowd of people to circle around her and hurl them at her until she was dead. Every right to do that according to their religious traditions and rules. Yet Jesus looks with compassion on this woman. He lifts her from that spot and he simply says, don't do this anymore. He doesn't try to force her into a religious mold. He doesn't say cut your hair and take the makeup off your face. And he doesn't say to her, you know, hey, you've got you've to quit this You've got to, got to quit being the person that you were. You've got to quit living in the house you were living in. You've got to make new friends. You, you've got to come to my Bible study. No, he says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's not, that's not what I have, the best intention I have for you. Don't, don't participate in that behavior anymore. You know it's wrong. Don't, don't do it anymore. In fact, Jesus is such a person who would rather lift than to push down that one of his own 12, one of his own disciples, Peter, fails him three times. And in failing him three times, he fulfills the prophecy that he would. Yet Jesus seeing this ultimate failure, this man who rejected in public 
the Christ that he had served, his best friend that he had walked with, the teacher, the rabbi that he had listened to for three years in his rejecting of him, Jesus still sees in him the spark of a great future, the dignity and worth, the dominion, the sense of overcoming that he had buried in his heart. And when Jesus rose from the dead, there's this phrase, those who were called to go tell the disciples, they were called in this way, go tell the disciples that Jesus is alive, but also tell Peter. Singles him out, the one who had betrayed him, the one who had denied him, singles him out and says, no, though there's still a spark left of dignity and worth in his heart, even go tell the one who betrayed him. Jesus is all about lifting those around him. Ephesians chapter two and verse six, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. But we wanna answer this question today on how we view ourselves and how we view the mess that we're in from time to time. We wanna answer a hard question that in our nakedness, when we're stripped bare, when it's just us and God and he sees all of our warts, all of our imperfections, all of our past history, all of our failures, what do we do? Do we start to craft for ourselves fig leaves to hide behind, excuses? Do we start to craft for ourselves a story that hopefully God accepts? rather than rushing to the cross and embracing a new normal because we've accepted a sense of dignity and worth. Ephesians chapter two and verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in this coming age, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Listen, there's a reason that Jesus brings us to the cross. There's a reason he refashions us. There's a reason that the writer of Hebrews references Psalms who's simply referencing Genesis. There's a reason that we see this story, this, this thread woven throughout the course of biblical history. There's a reason for it because God wants to show off the incomparable riches of his grace that are expressed in his kindness because of what he did in Christ. That everything at that cross is grace, it's love, it's mercy, it's kindness. And that if we accept it, we get to live in that newly found state. That we are no longer held, we are no longer held to the patterns of yesteryear. We are no longer held to our failures. We are no longer held to our inconsistencies. We are no longer held to that old dead person that has been buried in the tomb along with Jesus, that we have been resurrected to new life, that we can confidently say that we have a sense of dignity and worth, of value, a sense of overcoming, a sense of dominion. Why? Not because we've done anything on our own, but because we've found a new found life, we've found a new found perspective, we have found a new nature and it is in Christ Jesus. In pride, we seek so often to cover ourselves. In pride, we seek so often to fashion for ourselves a covering for others and for God. God, don't look at me. Don't look at me fully for who I am. And I have to create a facade. Don't, don't look at me. I can't have the public see me for who I am. But in grace, grace demands that we submit to this outrageous and even scandalous gift that God gives us that he erases our past and all of the sin that befell our life and all the payment that is just and is due, he erases it with the cross. He erases it with the gift that we see that Jesus gave on the cross. And he says, you can find a new sense of being. You can find a new sense of dignity and worth. 
Colossians chapter one and verse 26, it says the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That if we are to have any hope at all that we are to overcome, if we are to have any hope at all that we are to be those who reign in dominion here on planet earth, if we are to have any hope at all that we are those who have a newfound sense of dignity and worth, that we have a newfound sense, a right station, that we are found in Christ is because we are wrapped in Jesus. That we are wrapped in him, that we are found in him, as it says in here in Colossians in chapter one, that there's a hope that we are someday to be glorified fully, to put on our new nature when we find heaven as our home. But until that time, we put on the very characteristic, the nature of Christ as he wraps himself around us. What What does this look like? kind of a modern day setting. We have to understand this perspective that when God looks down through time and space, when God looks down from eternity, when he looks at your life, the first thing he sees is not your mess ups, your screw ups, it's not your past. The first thing he sees for those of us that are in Christ Jesus is his son, Jesus. If he's to turn his back on you, he has to turn his back on his son. If he is to overlook you, he has to overlook his son. That when he looks down through eternity and time and space, that he has to see your life through the prism of Jesus. This is why we are worthy. This is why we have a sense of worth. This is why we have a sense of value. This is why we can confidently say I'm an overcomer. This is why we can confidently take our station of dominion and rule and reign here in this life, not because we're good enough, not because you've studied enough scripture, not because you prayed enough last week, not because you gave enough in the offering, but because you are found wrapped in Jesus. The hardest thing in Christianity is to allow ourselves day by day, minute by minute, second by second, to identify as in Christ. It is one of the most difficult things that we can do to shed the old dead life, to say that is not me anymore. That is a dead man who is buried in a grave that is sealed up and that is, that is confiscated away forever. But that we are found new in Christ, that there is a hope that we will someday come to full glory, someday come to full reunification, someday come to a place where we are fully transformed. But until that moment happens, I know that I'm hid in Jesus. That the reason as it's written in Revelation that I have a right to the throne room of God is not because I'm good, but because he is so very worthy and I follow in that presence of Christ. I don't come on my own terms. I don't come with my, with my own parade, but I come fashioned and hidden in the person of Christ. This is why I can confidently say, I don't have to keep apologizing for my past. I don't have to keep apologizing for who I was, for the mistakes I've made. I don't have to keep apologizing for all the times I've missed it. Because once I let go and he forgives, I am now found in Christ. Once I come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and he washes that away, I am now found in Christ. And when God looks through time, space and history, when he looks through eternity, he does not see my inconsistencies. He does not see my faults and my failures. He sees Jesus first. And in that, I am given a sense of glory and honor or dignity and worth in Christ. In Christ, this is the hope that we have. 
We have no other hope outside of Jesus. In my own self, I'm not good enough. In my own self, I am not strong enough. In my own self, I don't have it together. In my own self, my marriage will fall apart. My kids will run from me someday. They will totally devoid me as their father. I guarantee you, I am not good enough to keep those things tight and together. But in Jesus, I know that I can be an overcomer. In Jesus, I know that I can scale any mountain or any wall that's put in front of me. In Christ, I know that I have a sense of dignity and worth that comes from heaven that I may, I may wonder about. I may be struck in awe about. I may be just like the psalmist and look up in the night and think, God, this universe is expanding at, at, at epic proportions, yet you know the affairs of each and every one of your children. And then you give each and every one of us a sense of dignity and worth. God, what am I in the scope of this universe? Yet you have placed your finger on me. I have the Imago Dei, the image of God, literally printed on my person. There's a reason you ever overcome. It's part of your spiritual DNA. There's a reason we as believers are called to be overcomers. It's part of our spiritual DNA. There's a reason you are to live in a sense of dignity and worth, that you are to have a sense of value in who you are. It's because it's written into your, your spiritual DNA. You are made in his image and in his likeness. And even when we broke the code, he rescued us back. Even when we sided with God's arch enemy and sin entered the world, he made a way for our redemption so that we could live again in this sense of dignity and worth. The hardest, the hardest job of a Christian every day of the world, moment by moment, minute by minute, minute is to live in that sense of dignity and worth. The hardest thing we can do as believers is the moment we screw up, the moment we mess up, the moment we fall short is to give it over to God and say, that's not me anymore. The moment it happened in the past, it's in the past. Ask for forgiveness, be redeemed, and allow him to cover you again with his presence. And move on knowing that you are in Christ and that in Christ you are redeemed. This morning, I hope I've driven it home hard enough that you don't have to live constantly thinking about your old life that you don't have to live constantly thinking about your old failures, even if they were yesterday. That you don't have to live this life constantly beholden to a past that you are ashamed of. That today you can let it go and that you can live in this new space in Christ. That you can live with a newfound sense of dignity and worth. That you can understand you have value because of everything that happened on that cross. That you are hidden in Christ. This morning, it might be one of the hardest things you can do just to admit to yourself, I'm not my own, but I'm his. This morning, it might be one of the most difficult things you can do in this life to convince yourself that your past is of no consequence and that he loves you and he values you just where you're at. But that's what these scriptures tell us. That's what this book is all about. That's what this story throughout history is all pointing to, that you and I can come to a place where we re-engage and we re-up a sense of dignity and worth, not because we're good or smart, not because we have it together, but because of everything Christ has done at that cross. This morning, we're gonna pray, but I'm gonna ask you to follow me to the cross of Christ, to understand that in him is where you have a sense of dignity and worth, that in him is where you have a sense of dominion, that in him is where you have the right and the reason to overcome whatever stands in your path.